uh, for a variety of reasons. I am uh, delighted to be able to introduce a friend to you that is uh, certainly not a stranger to uh, Northside Baptist Church. I believe, Dr. Tompkins, it was last April, I think, that you were here. Um, but I knew that I would still be trying to figure out what time zone my brain was in. Um, I, told, I told Marcy, she told me, why don't you take a nap before dinner? I'm like, no, I'm fine. So I unpack my, my, uh, my luggage, and I sort through the mail, throw away the junk mail, separate the bills, get done. I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll lay down for just a second. It's like somebody shot me with a tranquilizer dart. 30 seconds, I think I was snoring, slobbering on the pillow. And uh, like two hours later, she's standing over me like I'm unconscious. Wake up, wake up, wake up. So, uh, Dr. Tompkins, I cannot promise that I, I, will, I will do my best to give you the very best of my attention, but I don't know what's going to happen with me today. Uh, Dr. Tompkins has become a very special friend over the years. Uh, originally knew him kind of just through word of mouth and his ministry at North Rock Hill. Uh, know that uh, when, when we have our men that meet together for our theology breakfast at 6 o'clock on Thursday morning, I think you do Monday or Tuesday morning, but we're now occupying the same place. We're, we're competing for the best spaces at Panera Breakfast at 6 o'clock in the morning. So uh, we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, Dr. Tompkins has his degree in apologetics. That's really kind of a specialty of his. Uh, getting ready to travel to, is it New Zealand? Mm-hmm. Here in just a couple weeks to do apologetics training for pastors and uh, Christians overseas. But uh, we have gotten to know him where he has become kind of most near and dear to us as he is the Bible teacher for my kids at uh, Providence Classical School. And so we have loved how he just uh, has a passion to teach the word to children, uh, to train pastors around the world. And uh, he was more than willing to allow me to not make a fool of myself trying to preach with jet lag and to come and uh, speak to us this morning. He's going to talk about a very important subject uh, related to when we talk about... uh, carrying the gospel with us every day. Every single one of you have dealt with the issue of how do you really wrestle with when bad things happen to, to good people. Now, you're not as good, good a people as you think you are, okay? So that's part of it. But how do we really wrestle with? I mean, our, our faith is really tested when we deal with difficult circumstances. And so being an apologetics major and dealing with the problem of evil, uh, how do we wrestle with this? He's going to come and he's going to talk to us. And so, uh, guys, we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool. There's going to be some really serious stuff to think through today. But God has uh, gifted us this morning with a very capable guide, and uh, I'm grateful to uh, be able to hear what he has to say this morning. So, Dr. Tompkins, thank you so much for being with us. Join me up here, and I'm going to pray as you come. Father, thank you for uh, your servant and his willingness mm-hmm. to teach us, and I pray that you empower him and anoint him again with your spirit to teach us so that we will be equipped uh, for carrying out your good works in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. good morning. Thanks for letting me come again and to share with you. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 20. It's just one. I'm just going to read one verse. That's it. Uh, but I'm going to be referencing a lot of verses as we go through our message, my message this morning. So this is just to get us started. But it's an important one verse, as you'll see as we go through this. The prophet Isaiah, speaking uh, on behalf of God, says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Several years ago, my wife and I, uh, was living in Europe. We lived in Belgium, uh, in a suburb of uh, of uh, Brussels, and we used to love to take trips. 
when we were in uh, Europe by train. I mean, you actually, it's enjoyable to travel by train in Europe. And we used to love to do that. And one year, uh, my wife's brother and his wife came to visit us. He was a, uh, a pastor. And we took some time and took a short trip north of us into the Netherlands. And we went to um, uh, Harlem, Netherlands. And it's a small town, but you may know it. That's the home of the Tim Booms. Remember the Tim Boom story? Um, the, uh, uh, the father owned and operated a watch and clock shop. They're in the heart of Harlem, and they lived above the shop. And uh, that's where they were hiding Jews during World War II. It was great to go through that, that, uh, that tour of the house. And by the way, it's still a watch and clock shop. It hasn't changed. So we went up and we went to the tour of the house and we, we saw the place where they used to hide the Jews. And I'm telling you, I'm very claustrophobic. And they got this little bitty, bitty dinky room in the back of a closet. And they'd put a whole family in there. And I'm saying, wow, no way I could do that. And when uh, uh, Mr. Tim Boom was asked one day why, why he's doing this in violation, by the way, of civil law. I mean, the law was passed. You had to turn Jews in. Why did he do it? He says, because I'm answered to a greater, a greater good. I obey God's laws. Well, it cost him a lot to do that because the whole Tim Boom family were arrested and put into a concentration camp, and when it was all said and done, only one survived the camp. And that was Corey, Corey Tim Boom. We'll talk more about her just a little bit later. See, the Tim Booms were forced to confront what was without question an evil of their day with the goodness of their faith, to be a light in the face of the darkness around them. See, evil does exist, and how we engage it as a people of God is extremely important, folks. It really is. And this forms the theme of what I want to talk about today. Now, I only have a, a short time to, to cover a very deep and complex subject, and I've did my best to condense it down. Now, I can go a little bit more in this service because Scott told me it's fine. I can expand it a little bit as long as I keep it under an hour. No, I'm just kidding. Not going to do that. But I may, because I have cut it down a lot, I may leave you with some questions. Hopefully not. If you do, don't be bashful but trying to contact me. You can send me emails or call me. I'll be glad to discuss this in more details with you. I lecture on this subject quite a lot, actually, both in the United States and outside the United States. So it's a, it's a real complex thing. But here's the thing. Evil has been around since the beginning of time. Humanity has had to confront it in the garden, and we've been dealing with it ever since. When sin entered the world, so did evil. And the Bible is full of words like, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, meaning that they had turned away from God. No one debates that there's a good and evil. We only debate what we should call evil and what we should call good. But as Isaiah has warned, we better get it right. We better get it right. So this morning, we want to answer three questions. What is evil? Why is it here? And what is God doing about it? Surely God's doing something about it, right? So we're going to address those three questions. And one of the age-old questions that Christians have had to face is why an all-good and all-powerful God allows evil to exist. In fact, the presence of evil is one of the arguments 
that many use as a proof that there is no God, or at least no God of the Bible as we know it. But, as we'll soon see, you can't call anything good or evil without God. Without God, what constitutes evil and goodness would represent only what? Individual opinions, human opinions at that. And opinions, in and of themselves, are often not quite correct. And therefore, they rarely represent the truth. Therefore, in order for us to, to for there to be a real good and a, and a real evil, there must be a real God, even if we don't fully understand Him and His nature. That's the truth. There must be something that transcends humanity that's going to serve as a reference point in order to determine what good and evil really is. It's got to be. Without God, there is no real purpose. There is none for pain and suffering and tragedy, regardless of whether it's natural or man-made. There is no sense to it. The God of the philosophers and the God of the skeptics and even of other religions cannot make sense of evil or pain or suffering. Their faith and their understanding of how things work falls apart when you deal with that. Only the God of the Bible can give purpose to understanding of this concept of evil. So the argument that since evil exists, then God cannot is not valid. And we're going to specifically address why that is in just, just a little bit. So let's get started. Our starting point for our discussion is to define what is good and what is evil. Now I want you to catch this. I'm probably going to mess with your mind just a little bit. So bear with me. Hopefully by the time I'm done, it'll make more sense to you. You're going to think I've lost my mind when I tell you this. See, evil does not really exist. Well, let me qualify that. It doesn't really exist as a separate entity. In other words, there's no dualism. In a lot of religions, there's dualism. There's two opposing forces. There's a good force and an evil force. And they oppose each other. They compete for each other. They may or may not be equal, but they oppose each other and they, and they conflict with each other. In fact, even, even through the history of the church, there's been Christians who've tried to, to come up with a dualistic understanding of evil and good. So much so that they've sometimes taken the Old Testament and said, well, the God of the Old Testament is the bad God. That's the evil God. He's the lesser God. But there's a different God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament, well, he's the good God. He's the greater God. And they try to differentiate that, but it's not true. It's simply not true. There is only good in the absence of good. That's all that there is. Evil is not an eternal principle that exists outside God. So here's the thing. Evil is the absence of God's goodness. Evil is the absence of God's goodness. The absence of the goodness of God is what we know as evil. It's also not a thing, and it's not a substance. It's the lack of good, and only God represents the fullness of good. That's why that warning in Isaiah 5.20 is so important. Because you can substitute God for the word good. You cannot call God evil, an evil God. You must not. Now that doesn't mean that evil is not real. It is very real. It's real as long as there is some goodness. And here's the thing. 
strange as it may sound, evil cannot exist without the goodness of God. Yet its only existence is outside the presence of the goodness of God. Very deep. Woo! But it's true. Hopefully that will come a little more clear as we, as we come through this. Pain and suffering and disasters and all that are just the result or the symptom of evil. It's not evil itself. Just like my head cold this morning is only a symptom of my cold. It's not the real cold. The cold is the virus inside me. Hopefully it's gone. Hopefully I'm not infectious. I don't think I am. So you can see why one must begin with the premise that God exists to make any sense out of this thing. Because without Him there is no goodness, and thus there can be no evil. And that's why Jesus said what He said to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 and 19. Let me read it for you. A ruler asked him, in Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a great question. And Jesus answered him with a question. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one. God. Now that's a powerful, powerful statement that contains a couple very important messages. One of it very, is very clear, right? Only God is good, period. But there's a subtle message in there. Where Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, you can't call me good teacher because I am good because I am God. That's the underlying message. And then he goes on to explain what needs to be done. We, we also can see from Psalms 25.8 and Psalms 34.8 that God is declared as good. And what makes God good? Is it something, you know, he, you know, he went to school for and learned how to be good? No. Here's the thing. All that makes God God makes him good. Yes, that's right. He is good because he is God. And all that he is is good. He is the definition of good. And there is no other definition. Period. Thus, where there is no God, there is no good. And evil rushes in to fill the void. We see this in the condition of the world that's recorded in Genesis 6-5 during the time of Noah. And then again in, in Genesis chapters 18 and 19 inside Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to keep something in mind. It is impossible for total evil to exist as long as God exists. Oh, well, by the way, in case you haven't figured this out, God will always exist. Since evil is the absence of good, then if something was totally evil, what? It would be without any goodness, and therefore it would be nothing. There must be good against which to measure evil, or you can't even know something is evil. A, a garment that is totally moth-eaten is non-existent. It's only a moth-eaten cloth as long as it is a cloth. If I hold a moth-eaten cloth up to you, and you can see the holes where the moths have eaten it, well, that's a moth-eaten cloth. So the moth-eaten cloth only exists as long as there's a cloth. When there's no cloth, there is no moth-eaten cloth. That's true. The fact that evil is present points directly to the existence of God. 
For without God and his goodness, we would not even know that there is such a concept as evil. There would be nothing with which to find a reference point and nothing to make sense out of this world. And that's why Satan works so hard to remove God from this world. So why wouldn't God just create a world where evil was not allowed? Where his goodness would just exist, couldn't be corrupted. Why? Well, it's because as hard as it may be to understand, God actually has purpose for evil. Well, I'm really messing with your mind. But this leads me to the second thing that I want to unpack with you today. See, God allows evil because he has purpose for it. So here's the thing. It's important to understand evil and its place in this world in order to understand God and his purpose for this world. According to Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he says that God only had three options when he created the world. Only three. Only three choices. Number one, he could create a world where nothing could go wrong. Now, he's God, he could do that. So that's option number one, create a world where nothing can go wrong. Or number two, he could create a world where something could go wrong, and then he would just destroy it if it did. And he'd recreate another world. And when something went wrong, he'd destroy that one. He'd just keep on doing it over and over and over and over again. He could do that. He's God. Or option number three, he can make a world where it's possible for something to go wrong, but have a plan already in place to redeem it if it does. Well, what did God choose? He chose option number three. Why? Because God has a greater plan that transcends this world, and that plan involves a little four-little word called love. If you get nothing out of what, else of what I'm going to say to you this morning, grasp this aspect about love. That's the ideal world that God desires. Well, that's why he chose number three. He chose it because it's a matter of love. God is more than a God of justice and power. He's that, yes, but he is ultimately a God of love. Just read 1 John 4, 8. He says, the one who does not love does not know God. Because what? God is love. The fullness of God's goodness is demonstrated in his love and our response to that love through faith that produces a loving relationship with God and along with some other things, brings him glory. True. And since God is love, then he desires for us to have a loving relationship with him. Now catch this. For now, until Christ returns, the existence of God's perfect goodness in the lives of people and in the world in which they live is contingent upon man's willingness to love God. That's why Jesus told his disciples that the, that the world would know that they are his by why? By the love. He says, I give you a new commandment, love. This is what John was trying to tell us in 1 John 4, verse 16. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Oh, Cassius, this is really good stuff. The one who remains in love remains in God. And what? God 
remains in Him. That's why He created us, to have a loving relationship with Him and to bring Him glory through it. And here comes some more really good stuff. God allowed for the chance that evil could exist because He desires, His desire is for us to truly know His goodness and to have an eternal, loving relationship with Him. We cannot know God's love until we know His goodness, and we can't fully know His goodness unless we can understand what the lack of that goodness will bring. That's why God made it very clear to Adam in the garden. What? He said, what's going to happen to you, Adam, if you do what? If you eat of the tree of what? Of the understanding of good and evil. You will die. That's what God made very clear to Adam. And in this present fallen world, God is showing His goodness through His love and calling us to love Him and His goodness by revealing to us something other than that goodness. See, God is responsible for making evil possible. But we are responsible for making it a reality. That God has chosen love over everything. He has chosen, chosen to love us unconditionally without any action on our part and to trump our corruption of His goodness through the cross. One of my favorite passages is all of Scripture, Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrated His love for us in this, what? That while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. God's desire is for us to choose Him and His goodness through exercising love. Remember the greatest commandment that Jesus said? The one that summed up all the law? To love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like that. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. The degree to which we choose to do so will work against that corruption of God's goodness that we know is evil. I want to go back to that argument then that we outlined earlier concerning the presence of evil, proves what? That there is no God. See, that premise, the premise was that an all-good and all-powerful God could not exist if evil was present. There's a fallacy in that. See, the fallacy of that deduction is that it does not accurately define what an all-good God means. It leaves a lot out. In fact, it leaves most of God out. It fails to consider the fact that God's goodness is comprised of everything that is God, including the fact that He is also all-loving. And His love overrides everything. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. God has a greater plan that will provide for an evil, free, perfect world through His perfect love for us. One in which we will live with Him in a loving relationship and His goodness for all eternity. It is the ability to love God and to know His goodness and reject a world without that goodness that provides for the possibility of aligning ourselves with God's ultimate and overriding will to respond to this great love for us by loving Him, even if it's an imperfect love on our part. And for me it is. So God's desire is not simply for everything to be good. 
I mean, that may sound strange, but it's true. God's does not, desire is not simply for everything to be good, but for the attainment of goodness through relationship with Him, provided by His perfect love and response to that love by engaging in a loving responsive, a re, a relationship with Him. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible to have a perfect world that is full of goodness and void of evil without love. That's why options number one and number two were invalid. Couldn't happen. Number one, you can't know what love is. It's impossible to know what love is under option number one. And option number two, there's no redemption. Thus, there is no expression of God's love to the world. Only three could possibly be valid and by far the best option because it could not fail. Impossible to fail. If humanity had never sinned, then there would be this loving relationship through our obedience to God that produces this perfect relationship, and we would know God's goodness through that relationship. But if humanity was a sin, and we did, God overrides that failure with a plan based on His love to provide a loving relationship with us anyway. Man, how good is that? It doesn't get any better than that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I know you're saying, wait a minute, what about the flood? You know, God destroyed the world, right? Didn't he? No. He didn't. He flooded the world, but he didn't destroy it. He saved a lot of animals. And most importantly, he saved a righteous, but a very flawed man named Noah and his family. And that in and of itself is a great act of love. And of course, that begs the question, can an all-good and morally perfect God, whose nature is love, want evil to exist? Hmm. That's, that's, that's different. He allows it, okay, but does he really want it to exist? Now, theologians have been debating that for a long, long time. And we don't have time to, to really do this debate, but I'm going to just tell you what side I come down on and why. No, I don't believe God desires or wants evil to exist. But that doesn't mean he might still choose to not take action to prevent or eliminate it in the short term. He may let it be. See, Paul told his protege, Timothy, and recorded in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, that everything created by God is good. And even God pronounced his creation in Genesis 1 as what? Very good. God is only good. And Psalms 5.4 tells us that God takes no pleasure in evil. And Job 35.10 says that God can't do evil. But God may choose to allow evil because he has reasons for doing so that outweigh the desirability of acting toward evil. When I was a young boy, I used to have problems with my tonsils. They'd get infected all the time. And after... Uh, uh, several episodes when I was about seven years old, the doctors decided that the, the tonsils got to go. Let me tell you, I wasn't very big on that idea. As a seven-year-old, I didn't think that was, you know, a very good thing. In fact, it smacked of evil to me. In fact, I thought the doctor was evil to even suggest such a thing. To take me in and cut on me, not good. But here's the thing. The doctor knew something that I didn't know. 
He knew something that I couldn't even understand at that point in my life. In order to get rid of the infection, to free me from that repeated cycles, the tonsils had to be taken out. So here's the thing. There may be a purpose for evil that we simply cannot understand. And just because we, we, uh, we can't see the reason God allows it doesn't mean it's not still valid. Not knowing the reasons God has does not mean that they aren't valid or that God can't exist or that God isn't all good and all powerful. In the end, God has a greater good that results. And that greater good is the attainment of God's ultimate purpose. And thus what? It outweighs the evil that may exist in the meantime. This world in its fallen state is going to continue until Christ returns. But evil in the lives of people doesn't have to, at least not in all people. Even the suffering in and of and from this world comes from the evil produced by choosing something other than the goodness of God. But it was never God's intent for his creation to experience evil. His desire is and, and has always been for his creation to experience the goodness of his love. But he had to allow the possibility of evil in order for that to happen. Now, wait a minute. You're probably saying at this point, whoa, what about that guy, Satan? He's a bad dude. Isn't he the source of all evil? Doesn't he do evil things? Isn't he evil? Well, the answer is no. Yes, I said no. Satan may do evil, and he does. He may even be evil, and he is. But it isn't Satan that makes it evil. You know what it is? It is the absence of God that makes it evil. And that's a very, very important distinction. And it brings me to the final thing that I want to unpack for you this morning. See, evil is both temporary and it's limited. Here's the good news. God has a plan to eliminate evil forever. In fact, it was his plan from the very beginning. You see, the best path to the perfect world is through the conquering of evil with the goodness of God's love. And even though sin polluted God's perfect creation, God did not leave it or put it out of its misery. He had to tweak, yes, the world from time to time. He did a little tweaking. He had to administer some harsh discipline from time to time. But he did not destroy it completely. At least not yet. What did he do instead? He poured out his perfect love on it. No matter how much evil and suffering occurs, God's goodness vastly outweighs it. Why? Because his goodness is poured out through his love. So the best way to the perfect world was and remains the cross. Absolutely. So here's some really good stuff. Oh, I love this. God's goodness is his justice and power and his love, grace, and mercy all manifested through the incarnation and atonement and the redemption, that, the redemptive purpose that it provides. It all comes to, together at the cross. 
And he's made that assured, absolutely, by the resurrection of Christ. So through the death and resurrection of Christ, God is producing a vastly superior world. And while in the short term, there may be some temporary victories by evil that may be occurring, they're nothing less than a means to an end because the possibility of their existence is needed in order to bring about the final defeat of evil and the perfect world that God desires and He will have. How do I know? I've read the end of the book. Guess what? God wins. And all of those who have chosen to love God by accepting His great loving sacrifice on the cross, they win too. So therefore, evil in this world truly is temporary and its status is limited. See, this isn't a perfect world yet, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be the best of all possible worlds. It only needs to be, and I believe that it is, the best way to obtain the best of all possible worlds. Do you understand that? It doesn't have to be the best world right now. It has to be the best way to obtain the best of all worlds. And it is. Not every specific event needs to have a good purpose. Only the great general purpose needs to be good. And God has this great general purpose. And it's good. But here's some more good news. God will overcome evil and establish a perfect world where only love prevails. In fact, He's already dealt with evil through the death and resurrection of Christ. The Bible is replete, one of my mother-in-law's favorite words with that theme. That's our great hope as Christians. So it makes our faith really great. The outcome is certain. You say, eh, well, that's fine. Okay, the end is good. What about now? It isn't so good right now. Why doesn't God just, why, why does he just protect us? Why does he still allow Christians to have to suffer bad things? Why can't he put just a cone of protection around us? We walk through this evil world and nothing just thing bounces off of us. Nothing can happen to us. The Bible is pretty clear. It says we're going to have to suffer the effects of this evil world. You can't get around it. But the Bible also tells us in John 16, 33, that in this world we're going to have to suffer. But we're supposed to be of good cheer, to be encouraged, because Jesus said what? I have overcome the world. And John 3, 19, 20 tells us that, that men loved darkness because they were evil. But light, light in the form of God incarnate, has come into this dark world. That's good news. There's three reasons, at least three reasons, why Christians have to suffer. There's probably more than three, but I'm just going to highlight quickly three for you. Number one, first, we have to suffer because we happen to live in a fallen world. Yes, it is fallen, and we're in it. It's all around us. And oh, by the way, it's fallen because what? We made it fallen. Hmm. Reason number two. We have to suffer because our suffering will grow us and will strengthen our relationship with God if we let it. And thirdly, the one that I like the best. To me, it speaks the best. The reason we suffer, because it shows Christ to the world. Yes, I said it. 
is how we show Christ to the world. Evil can be at least partially subdued in this world and shown for what it truly is by how Christians respond to it and how we endure its effects. True. Matthew 12, 35 tells us that a good man produces good out of the goodness in him. And since, what, only God is good, right? Then we who have God within us must produce God's goodness. That's how we show God to the world. Now, a word of caution. Probably don't need to say this, but I will. We don't become good by doing good things. We all know that doesn't work that way. We do good things, and by good things we meet the things of God because of the goodness of God within us. God defines what good is. We don't. So, we're faced with this, this world and, and the evil in it and the things we have to suffer in it. So how should we respond? What are some of the things that we should do? Well, Christ made it pretty clear. He says what? What are we supposed to do with our enemies? Pray for them or you, or you, uh, 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 you love them. You love your enemies and you pray for them. You love and pray for your enemies. Man, that's hard. John tells us, the Apostle John tells us, we're supposed to walk in the light and show that light to the world. Get out in the darkness and, and shine the light, even in the midst of persecution. But Peter makes it real practical, I think. In 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to read verses 8 and 9, then I'll jump down and read some others. But I want you to grab this. I think this is really important stuff. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Now, finally, all of you should be like-minded. In the Greek, that word really means to be one-minded. And sympathetic, should love brothers, and be compassionate and humble. <sighs> That's hard. But here comes the really hard part. That's really easy compared to what he says in verse 9. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you can inherit a blessing. Wow. In the face of evil, we are, to, we are called to give a blessing so that we can inherit a blessing. I said this the first service. I'll say it again. This will reinforce it. There's a sermon in there. That phrase right there is a sermon, I'm telling you. And if you look on down in that chapter at verses 13 to 17, some more powerful unpacking of that, of that understanding. It says, and we, and excuse me, and who will harm you if you are passionate about what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but set apart the Messiah Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce, denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. And then, bingo, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, the things of God, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil, the things that are not of God. Man, that's powerful stuff. 
God is using the demonstration of His love and goodness in the, His people as part of His plan to redeem a fallen world. We are called to be the light of, of goodness in the midst of the darkness of evil. To act as the ten booms did in the world of evil in which we live. Now, do you know the rest of the story of the ten booms? When the war was over, there was only one remained, and it was Cory Ten Boom. And she spent the rest of her life traveling throughout wherever she could go to tell her story and to proclaim the goodness of God. And once she gave a, 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 a talk about goodness and forgiveness, and following that talk, an old man approached her from the back of the room. And as he got close, she recognized who he was. He was one of the guards from the concentration camp where she had been. And this guard asked her to forgive him. And Corey says that is perhaps the hardest thing she's ever had to do. Harder than the concentration camp was to forgive one of the people responsible for it. But she did. You see, there's no better way to show the light of goodness and overpower the acts of evil than what Corey did to demonstrate that my God of goodness is greater than your acts of evil through forgiveness and the act of love. See, God truly is greater than us. He has a greater purpose and He has an overall great good plan to eliminate evil with His goodness and love. But he's asking us, each of us, to be a part of that, to join him. And that doesn't begin at the end of times. It begins today, right now. That's what we're called to do, to shine his light, his goodness, in the darkening evil world. Let's pray together. Father God, we do give this day to you. We pray that you will help all this theological stuff that we talked about just to clear our minds and our hearts and, and help us to understand that the bottom line is simple. You have a plan that we cannot understand. And in that plan, you've reached out in your love to, to redeem us and you're using us to demonstrate that love in the, in the face of evil around us. Help us to grasp and understand that. It's really about your love. Help us to live a life in a loving relationship with you and show that to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.